Morning. So I want to tell you uh, an amazing story about St. Nicholas of Greece. No, not that St. Nicholas, a different one. He is indeed the one who comes down to us as Santa Claus, uh, but he did something uh, you will likely never hear of Santa Claus doing in around 330 AD. At that time, St. Nicholas was the bishop of modern-day Turkey, and he got word that um, the governor of the region was about to execute, behead, three men who had been uh, taken unjustly, hadn't had a trial. And uh, he did something that was rather risky, rather uh, dangerous and powerful. As soon as he heard of the governor's plans, he took off immediately, set out for the palace to protest this injustice. The, the governor at the time was known to be corrupt, so Nicholas felt he couldn't waste any time. On the way, however, he was met by someone who informed him that, in fact, the three men who were to be beheaded had been moved from the palace to the place where they would be executed. Uh, Nicholas didn't give up, didn't waste any time. He turned then and ran in the opposite direction, and he went into a dead run to get there in time. According to Adam English, author of the book, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, when Nicholas arrived, he burst into the place and found the three condemned men on their knees with their hands tied behind their backs and a cloth over their faces. These men had no doubt resigned themselves to their fate. But Nicholas forced his way through the crowd of wide-eyed gawkers, yanked the sword from the executioner's hand, threw it on the ground, and then dramatically untied the men and set them free. But he wasn't done yet. He then marched off to confront the governor and chastise him for this injustice of condemning innocent, innocent citizens without a trial. So Nicholas broke down the door, interrupted the governor mid-sentence, and took him to task. St. Nicholas said, that's it. You're on the naughty list from now on. No, that's not what he said. He accused the governor of being a thief, an enemy of God, sacrilegious and bloodthirsty and unjust, but he still wasn't finished. He continued, and you even dare to come before me, you who do not fear God, you who had the cruel intention to kill innocent people since you committed this kind of wickedness, I cannot have any respect for you. God is reserving for the unjust a tortured life. He knows how your government works and how this province allows looting and killing men against the law and without trial for deadly greed or gain. Santa Claus? Really? No. No, that guy looks even fishier than the last guy. Move it on because that's going to be distracting. So the story goes the governor was undone by Nicholas's words. He fell to his knees, he admitted his guilt, and he begged Nicholas for forgiveness. And then Nicholas obliged him by praying a long prayer. That'll teach him. And then he pardoned the governor. See, I think in some ways, we have done to Jesus what we have done to St. Nicholas. We have tamed him. We have cleaned him up. We have domesticated him, over-sentimentalized him. And in doing so, we have diluted his passion and perhaps our own passion in the process. English poet and author Dorothy L. Sayers put it this way. She said, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. I had to look it up. A curate is a pastor. <laughs> That's me. 
Those who knew him, however, objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. We don't like a Jesus who confronts us. We don't like a Jesus who, who does and says things that make us very uncomfortable. We like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And yet that is not who we meet in today's passage. Today we see this firebrand Jesus making some people very uncomfortable. And Jesus is God in the flesh, so when God makes you uncomfortable, well then, you should probably just accept it, let yourself feel uncomfortable, and then ask why that is. Why would God make you uncomfortable? Why would God make us uncomfortable Because God has something so important, so vital that he wants to communicate that he cannot be bothered with niceties or political correctness. In the story so far, Jesus has just transformed water into wine, the best wine and and a lot of it. And then in verse 13 of chapter 2, we fast forward a bit. Now it's worth noting that John places this event at the beginning of his gospel, whereas all three other gospels put it at the end of of the gospel right near the end of Jesus' life and ministry. John does this to make a point. He moves it around to make a point, which was perfectly acceptable in that day and age when you wrote these kinds of documents. Nothing we should be bothered about by this. It's not unlike sometimes when we see a movie, and that movie might open with a scene that actually takes place near the end of the film, and we see a little bit of the scene, and then suddenly we flash backward in time, and we... See how we got to that. Maybe there's even a little subtitle that pops up that says three years earlier or something like that. Another important detail for us to better understand what John is up to here is the fact that John wrote his gospel, his gospel account, much later than the other gospels. Some think as late as 90 AD. And in that time period, uh, in that time period, something uh, rather significant has happened, something monumental. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by Rome. And at that time, Jewish followers of Jesus were still very much connected to the Jewish community, but they had no temple. Furthermore, scholars think that uh, one of the other realities at play was that Jewish people who had expressed faith in Jesus were being kicked out of their synagogues at the time that John was writing his gospel. John's gospel is likely addressed to these people and their situations. He's writing the way he's writing to comfort them and to speak to them. So let's consider this for a moment. When the place of God's dwelling, the temple, if you're a first century Jew, the temple has been destroyed. You might feel that God is no longer with you. When you're kicked out of the synagogue, the places where your people gather, the places where you you find and reaffirm your identity as God's chosen people, you might feel as if you've been left alone, abandoned. And so John writes to these people in the late first century who have been kicked out of the synagogues and who have no temple. And he thinks that maybe Jesus has something to say about these things, something that would encourage this community of early followers of Jesus. Maybe John tells the story the way he does in part to encourage his readers. As if to say, you know, you don't actually need the temple anymore. You've got Jesus. It's okay if you've been kicked out of synagogues because now you have one another, sisters and brothers in the body of Christ. So finally, 
We start. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. These money changers, as we call them, weren't actually doing anything wrong according to the Jewish law. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 to 27. At at Passover and other uh, feasts, pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to worship and to offer sacrifices and offerings at the temple. But if you lived far away, it could be rather impractical to take your animals with you for the sacrifice. Or you might have different currencies, so you might need a place to exchange your currency for local coinage. So a service was provided, a sort of a PayPal for pilgrims, (laughs) to make it a bit more convenient for faithful Jewish people to fulfill their religious duties. And that service was stipulated, laid out in the Jewish law, their Bible. See, the problem for Jesus is, in part, that they're doing this in the temple courts, not outside of the temple. And there is no indication in John's version of this story, there is no indication in this passage that these money changers, these merchants were cheating anyone. I don't know about you, but I carried that with me a very long time before I realized, at least in this part, it's not in the text. There's no sense of that. They may have been, but neither John nor Jesus tell us that. All Jesus does is accuse them of making God's house into a marketplace, and that is the problem. And then note that Jesus is not chasing human beings with a whip made of cords. He's chasing animals. Verse 15 says that he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. The all is both sheep and cattle. Now make no mistake. I'm sure that the human beings in the temple courts that day who were selling things were running from Jesus. I just don't think he was chasing them. Probably the smartest thing they did that day was to run from Jesus. And while it's possible that there is some righteous anger in Jesus' actions in the temple, I I really think, and I'm not saying that anger isn't a part of this, but I really think what's really going on is passion. Passion. Jesus is not... Oh, I'm going to stop and tell you a funny story. So, here's what I've realized about myself. It does relate, just give me a minute. I've realized about myself uh, that... Uh, bald men with deep-set eyes look angry most of the time. Right, John? Yeah, I know. Right, Doug? Right. We just People think we're angry. I don't know what it is. And I realize that when I get passionate, I look angry. So, here's my secret. I actually put in red print in my sermons, just take it and put it in red font because it says to me, smile, they're going to think you're mad. Because sometimes when you're passionate, you look angry. And I think Jesus is passionate. Maybe he was a bit angry. Certainly he looked angry. But passion is what wins the day. I said that because there's red print right here. (laughs) I usually take it out of what I give to the people in the sound booth and everything because I don't want to explain it. But I forgot today. I wasn't going to waste paper. So I told Sam, I said, this is why that's there. He goes, really? I said, yeah, I look angry. So I tell myself to smile. I don't even know where I was. Okay. 
So I do think it's about passion. It's not about cheating others. He's saying that, Jesus is saying, now that he has come, this whole system misses the point. This cleansing of the temple, as we often call it, really is an object lesson. It's a prophetic action proclaiming the need to dismantle the whole system and replace, to replace it with something better. Himself. Himself. After Jesus has made a mess of the temple, John says in verse 12, I mean verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. You see, it's not really about what Jesus is against. It's about what Jesus is for. It's not really about what Jesus is against. It's about what Jesus is for. It's about the dawning of a new age. You see, even though Jesus was about to replace the temple, he is very much for all that the temple should represent. He is for it. The temple was a powerful symbol for the people of Israel, the most powerful one they had. To them, it was the place where God dwelt, or at least God had dwelt and would dwell again. It was the place where sins were forgiven, where sacrifices were made as acts of worship and and repentance and purification. As scholar Carol Myers puts it, the temple was the cosmic center of the universe, the place where heaven and earth converge, and thus from where God's control over the universe is affected. If you've looked at the bulletin in the Bible app, it's a different title for the sermon because I changed it and the people in front office will tell you I do this often. The temple is the place where heaven and earth converge. The temple was also a symbol of the election of the people of Israel from all the peoples of the earth. So Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1 tells us this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. All nations will stream to it. And so the temple, then, is not only a a symbol of the chosenness of the people of Israel, it's a symbol of their calling, their mission. They were to be chosen. They were chosen to be a light to the nations, the Gentiles, to bring the nations into relationship with God. And one day, Isaiah says, one day the nations will stream to it. So again, one of the key things Jesus does here is he replaces the temple with himself and now the nations will stream to Jesus. John tells us that Jesus' disciples remembered verse. Psalm 69 verse 9 where David says, zeal for your house has consumed me, the Disciples heard in David's words something that applies to Jesus who will sit on David's throne. When we look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, we see that Christ is the key to more fully understanding what is written in the Hebrew Scriptures. Patterns and phrases and and, and words that were never previously understood to be speaking of the Messiah suddenly appear and suddenly seem to make a bit more sense or a deeper sense when they are seen through the lens of Jesus. This can happen to us as it did for the disciples. For now, that Jesus is on the scene, they, they, these disciples, they see in Psalm 69.9, they see a prophetic word that speaks not only about King David, but the son of David, the Messiah. And it makes sense on a deeper level. 
The Greek word translated as zeal sounds a lot like the word it translates, zelos, zealous. It means an excitement of mind, a fervor of spirit, embracing, pursuing, and defending anything. This this excitement, this passion, this fervor are, are, are not for the temple building itself, but for the temple as the place where God dwells and from which God reaches the nations. This is what Jesus has zeal for. Zeal for these things consumes him. And now the temple has become a marketplace. And as many business leaders will tell you that businesses and churches can sometimes experience mission drift. Mission drift. Even more to the core, the people of Israel, like so many churches today, have experienced passion drift. Passion drift. They and we may have lost our passion for God, our passion for Jesus, our our passion for the presence and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us and out into the world. This zeal for God's house is the thing that rose to the top of my awareness as I was praying through this passage and trying to understand what God would want to say. I've preached on it so many times. You've heard it so many times. And as I was praying, this sentence rose to the top. And I'm confronted with the question of zeal. And I think God wants to lovingly confront us all with the question of zeal. If it was zeal for God's house that consumed Jesus, what consumes me? What consumes you? What consumes us as the people of God at this time in this place? More important, what ought to consume us? What ought to be our passion? What ought to excite our minds and awaken that spiritual fervor for holy just, passionate, zealous, missional activity in the house of God and beyond the house of God out into the world, into the community. What ought to consume us? Now that Jesus has disrupted things and made these religious leaders very uncomfortable, they want to know why. John continues, verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus has enacted a powerful living metaphor for his opponents and for us. They want a sign, he'll give them a sign, but he's going to wrap it in the coming destruction of the temple as if it were a parable. As John's first readers knew full well, the temple had been destroyed. In 70 AD, as I said, Rome would sweep in and take care of the job. And God's people, to their understanding, may have felt abandoned by God. But Jesus says two things with this promise of a sign. First, he's not actually or just talking about the physical destruction of the temple. He is also talking about his own death and resurrection. Which his disciples didn't even understand until later. So in a sense, to say that 
Jesus was consumed by zeal for God's house has a second meaning. Because Jesus' zeal for God's house, for God's honor, for God's purposes in the world did consume him all the way to death and crucifixion. Second, as I said earlier, Jesus is prophetically dismantling the entire temple system complete with money changers and sacrifices. And he's, re- he's replacing it with God's new dwelling himself. Just as Jesus transformed the water into wine in last week's passage, so this week Jesus transforms the temple into himself. Or himself into the temple, depending on how you want to see it. The dwelling place of God. Jesus is the word made flesh who has made his dwelling among us. For John's first readers, this had to be an encouragement. God has not abandoned them because Jesus has come. They no longer need the temple. They've entered into a new phase of relationship with God and God's activity in the world. In storming the temple and disrupting what were very legitimate practices according to the law of Moses, Jesus was railing against the systems that kept people from worship, from prayer, from knowing God at all. And he was announcing a new and truer form and way of worship. And as a matter of fact, a couple of chapters over in John 4, when Jesus has this conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, he will say that a day will come when we will not worship in this building, the temple, or in that one. It won't matter what building it is because we will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why? Because God has made his dwelling among us. And now that God has also given us his spirit who dwells within us, we are the temple of the Lord. We are God's dwelling. We are those in whom Christ dwells and delights. We are the ones who pursue God's purposes in the world. We are God's house. 1 Peter chapter 2 puts it this way. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You also are being built into a spiritual house. We are God's house, God's dwelling. In the coming of Christ and in the giving of the Holy Spirit, friends, God has left the building. God has left the building. God has come from the heavens to the tabernacle, to the temple, to Jesus, and now in the church. And when I say church, I don't mean the building. I mean the people, the people of God who know God and follow Jesus and seek to pursue his purposes in the world. We, the community of faith, we are God's house. God is present to us and at work in and through us out into the world. This is what Jesus is passionate for, zealous for, consumed by. So zealous that he disrupted the status quo of the whole temple system to make his point. In the other Gospels where this incident takes place toward the end, in the last week or so of Jesus' life, Jesus' actions are actually portrayed directly as directly leading to his arrest and crucifixion. That's how serious this was. St. Nicholas, whom we saw at the beginning of the message, also disrupted the status quo. 
He stormed in noisily, protesting and dismantling the greed and the sin of this unjust governor. That could have cost him his life. And on this weekend, when we celebrate the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it is fitting for us to note, too, that he and many others disrupted the status quo of Jim Crow laws, dramatically confronted us with uncomfortable truths, with sit-ins and marches and protests. These cost him his life. Dr. King, St. Nicholas did these things to liberate people oppressed by injustice. Jesus did so to liberate us from a different kind of oppression, at least initially. That which hindered our becoming a part of a community of people who know God, seek to follow Jesus, and give our lives to pursuing God's purposes in the world. Jesus liberates us from enslavement to sin and the oppression of our guilt. Zeal for God's house, for God's purposes, consumed Jesus. What consumes you? What consumes you? What are you zealous for, sisters and brothers? What am I zealous for? What are we passionate about? What motivates us? What, what gives us that excitement of mind, that fervor of spirit, that will to embrace and pursue and defend God's purposes in the world? Or maybe nothing excites us or awakens our passion and zeal. I get that. I've been there. Maybe you, maybe we need a bit of a revival. That firebrand Jesus and the flame of the Holy Spirit to set us ablaze. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as they prepare and begin to play, I want to say to you that if you find Jesus boring, or your walk with Jesus to be lifeless or dull in some way, I believe with all my heart <clears throat> that Jesus wants to do a work in you today and in us. Jesus wants us all to remember once again that Christ dwells and delights in us. And that in and through us, Christ can be present to others. So I want us to spend a moment in silence together, directing all our attention on the presence of God. And then I'm going to close in prayer for you and for us that we will be consumed by the things that consume Jesus, that we will be set on fire, that we will receive a fresh wind, a fresh anointing, a fresh touch of God's Holy Spirit. So I invite you now, join with me. Let's just close our eyes, sit in silence for a moment. I'll just invite God to speak to us in this moment of silence. God, just help us to slow our breathing. Help us to pay attention to you. Help us to become aware of your presence in this moment and receive whatever you have for us.
God, as you sent forth your spirit on Pentecost, as you promised to live and dwell within us by your spirit, God, I pray that you would send forth a fresh anointing of your spirit upon each person here as individuals who cries out to be consumed by the things that consume Jesus. I pray you send forth the wind of your spirit, Lord, to fall upon us as a congregation. God, that we might be motivated, that we might become passionate, that we might have that kind of zeal for all the things that Jesus was zealous for. I pray that you make of us, oh God, a community of people who are so aflame with your spirit, so emboldened by the life death and resurrection of Jesus that we will go forth into our relationships, into our world wherever we are, knowing that you go with us and that we will bear witness to your goodness, grace and mercy, that we will bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ that we will bear witness to the arrival of the kingdom of God and that in and through us oh God, and in and through others whom we reach God that your kingdom would grow that your kingdom would be nourished and that people would bend their knees and bow their heads at your name, O oh God. And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name.